Now do please turn tonight to the book of Revelation. We'll start here and we'll finish here um, to chapter 19. And our subject tonight is the marriage supper of the Lamb or the marriage of the Lamb. This is a beautiful covenant picture. It's not a covenant itself. It's perhaps the final crowning aspect of the covenant of redemption. We've been thinking of covenants and this will again probably be the last in this series. We remind ourselves that a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. It takes on certain obligations, both parties do, and in response certain blessings and helps are given. This is a meaningful relationship that we have in a covenant that is established. Well here we've thought of the covenant of redemption between God the Father and God the Son which has already been kept by Christ in his perfect life, his perfect death and in the resurrection as he conquered Satan and sin and death and the grave. But the covenant isn't yet fulfilled in all its outward aspects and I hope we will see in a wonderful picture again one of those pictures that runs through the whole of the word of God in the marriage supper of the lamb we see the very heart of God what is this all about it's a phrase I'm sure many of you have heard it and you might understand aspects of it but I hope tonight to show you some of its glory and depth and it will warm us, I trust, and it will draw us and teach us, especially of this, of our need to be ready. Let's look at this verse. It says, verse 6, chapter 19, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. There's a vast crowd. This is clearly speaking of heaven. Some say this is on earth. I don't think that's right. This is after the coming of Christ the second time. In heaven there's a vast multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thunderings saying, this is surrounding the throne of God in heaven, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him this is the redeemed, this is those he's died for, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. Everything has finished. The gathering in of God's chosen people, all those that were called and chosen before the foundation of the earth, they've now been safely gathered in and the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. Here's the one message tonight. And we'll consider this at the end. Christ has come. All his children will be gathered in. They're not yet gathered in. And on that day when he comes again the second time and gathers his wife, who's the wife, the church, not just the Jews, all of the church, all of the redeemed, they will be gathered in. But what has the wife done? That's you and me if we're in Christ. The wife has made herself ready. Here's the one message tonight. 
if I can simplify it right at the beginning, Christ has not yet come back. In the time before he comes back, here is what we should be doing, making ourselves ready for his return. So I've given you the message at the beginning. Now I want to show you this whole thread as it goes through the word of God. You see, this is part of, it's what we could call the consummation, the joining together of all the threads in making that covenant complete and real when all of Christ's children, his chosen people, are gathered in. Up until then, the wife, she's just a bride. She's not yet married to the bridegroom. That's coming. That happens after the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we'll look at what this means in the Word of God. Up until then, the bride, which is the church, you and I, I trust, we're making ourselves ready. We should be in the church with other people in a covenant relationship as we've talked about before. This is where God wants us to be, not loners, not isolated for our growth, for our sanctification and for the furtherance of his kingdom. We are to be in covenant relationship together. Why? Because we're already engaged to be married to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is what this passage will teach us. It's been revealed all the way through Scripture. Christ is in a union with his church, but the marriage hasn't yet happened. And one day it will. The victory is secure. We are his bride. We are engaged from the moment that we're converted we are committed. Dear old Vernon Hyam used to say, if someone asked, can I come to this meeting or can I go to that meeting? And somebody comes along and says, can I play this or play that? Some game or some activity or some distraction? And he would say, no, say to them this, I can't come to that football match or that rugby match. I'm committed. I'm committed. I have a covenant relationship with my king and I worship him and I gather together with the Lord's people because I'm committed. I'm in a covenant relationship. Well, I want to look at the marriage picture very, very briefly through the word of God. You see, in the Old Testament, it was the Lord who instituted the possibility of relationship being restored. You know, relationship with God was broken, destroyed, ruined, made impossible because of the fall. We were cut off. We are alienated. We are needing to be reconciled. But the Lord gave to Abraham in covenant language in Genesis 15, don't turn to it, this covenant potential. He said to Abraham, that there would be the possibility by faith that the relationship could be restored. It was confirmed in Isaac, Genesis 26. And then when 
his son Jacob and then the covenant was renewed again and again and again through the Old Testament through Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy this covenant is opened up to the people and the people are reminded that even though you're cut off it's possible to be restored relationship can happen again and that's what Christian conversion is it's a man or woman a boy or girl who was cut off becoming engaged to the king becoming engaged to Christ Christ chooses his people he calls them out there is as it were a betrothal and then one day when Christ comes again that marriage will be fulfilled but what happens again and again the people of God who've said yes will be faithful yes we want a covenant relationship they go and serve other gods and they pursue their own interests and they betray the one that loved them but what does the Lord do he remains faithful to his covenant let's just think by way of illustration of the book of Hosea one of the minor prophets there the prophet in figurative prophetic language is called to go and marry a prostitute to marry an unfaithful woman and Goma she goes back to her old immoral life what does the Lord do well Hosea picturing the love of Christ goes back relationship is restored and it's speaking of Israel of the adultery the utter faithlessness of the people of God as they go back again and again into the world and that's us isn't it we're faithless we wander we stray but even though Gomer is unfaithful to her husband Hosea it doesn't stop there the love story continues and Hosea goes and calls her to return come back come back come come to me again let's have our relationship restored this is the gospel this is the covenant language pictured within a relationship and within marriage well marriage and weddings they're beautiful aren't they beautiful pictures or they should be sometimes they're not sometimes sadness comes in but marriage was originated in the heart of God for our benefit Adam hadn't even thought of the word wife before the Lord said to Adam it's not good to be alone he knew that Adam would need a helpmeet so he provided Eve in order that the mission of being faithful and multiplying and ruling and subduing the earth would be fulfilled well let's go right forward to the New Testament it's a picture of relationship and marriage littered through the old in the new where was the first miracle Cana a marriage that's what was chosen quite significant Christ himself in Matthew 5 
addresses the subject of marriage and unfaithfulness and adultery in the verses there, Matthew 5, 31, 32. Two more examples. The Lord used marriage for two parables. A king held a wedding feast. The unprepared bridesmaids who were not ready for the Lord's return. You see, this is language the Lord delights to use and therefore it's helpful for us. Well, that's marriage pictured in the Bible. What about in a Jewish context? We don't understand these verses in Revelation 19 until we see the Jewish context of weddings. You might know this, but in those days, a young man very often would be engaged to marry at the age of about 17, 18. And often the women were as young as 13 and 14. There was a prescribed set process. Usually the father of the groom would choose for the son. That's significant. Once the engagement or the betrothal had taken place and the bride had been selected, then generally around about a year, he would leave his wife-to-be. He wouldn't see her. There would be a period where he would leave her and he wouldn't be idle and neither would she be idle. But during that year, he would go and build a house. He would go and build a house or perhaps he would go to his father's house if he had a spare room and he would prepare it and make it ready. Then a year later, he would come back and there would be a ceremonial procession and she would be carried through the town, through the city. Very often the bridegroom would have a crown, would have very smart clothing and he would take her to the room in his father's house or to the house that he'd been, he'd been building during that year. There would be a chamber, a room prepared for that night and the marriage would be consummated no honeymoon and that night the feast would begin it would nearly always be held in the bridegroom's father's house and it would last for five to seven days this was significant this wasn't a one hour quick slap up meal no this was an almost week-long event to mark the beginning, not the end, the beginning of the marriage between these two. Well, that's the picture. The bridegroom would return. As the bride was carried, songs would be sung. Quite often they would be songs from Solomon's time. And then she would be taken to the home that's prepared. Three steps. Engagement, betrothal, a promise, the selections made. He goes, visits the bride-to-be and they are officially engaged. A year elapses. She doesn't know exactly when he'll return, but he will. He'll come back. And then she's taken. Taken 
to the father's house, probably. And the marriage supper, the feast, is prepared. Who by? By the bridegroom's father. I would like you to turn to John chapter 14. And I wonder if you've ever looked at these very familiar verses in this way before. I'm not sure I had until looking at this. John chapter 14, you'll know the words so well. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. In the verses in chapter 13 at the end, he's telling his disciples very specifically, I'm leaving you, I'm going. And the disciples begin to doubt and they worry because his physical presence won't be there any longer. And look at the language he uses at the beginning of chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. This is wedding, marriage language. It's Jewish marriage language. Don't be troubled in your heart. My bride-to-be. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, he's using the language that they would understand. They know exactly what he's talking about. This is going to be a wedding. Two are going to be joined together. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. They're engaged. He's leaving her, leaving his bride. He's going to get the room ready or to make a house. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. The return is certain. They're engaged. There's a covenant. There's a commitment. He will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, we won't be physically separated any longer in the marriage context a year, but for us an unknown, indeterminate period of time, to us at least, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. You know I'm going to my father's house to prepare a room, and I will come back, and we will be physically joined together. One of the disciples, just to finish the verses and show you the thread, Thomas asks, but we don't know. What does this mean? I'm confused. How can we know? And then the very famous verse, second most famous verse in the whole Bible, perhaps, John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me, this is ancient Jewish language speaking of a wedding, of an engagement. And one day the separation will be no longer. The bride and the bridegroom will be united forever. And the feast will not last for five or seven days. This will be eternal. Well... I want you to go back to Isaiah, just one more scripture before we go to Revelation 19. Isaiah chapter 25. Is this something that we're just seeing in the New Testament? Isaiah 25. Or was this very supper 
and feast and marriage picture was this prophesied even long ago? Well, the answer is yes. Isaiah 25, verse 6. Now, this is prophetic language. Some of it's very grand. But let's read from verse 6. Isaiah 25, 6. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts, speaking of Zion, of Jerusalem, of heaven, unto all people, a feast of fat things will be made. Oh, this isn't small. A feast of wines on the lees of fat things full of marrow health, of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy this mountain, the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. What's this speaking about? Well, probably the first coming of Christ, the veil will be torn. There will be a destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Roman authority will eventually fall, but surely not. Verse 8, he will swallow up death in victory. Yes, that's speaking of Christ and the cross. And the Lord God will wipe away all tears. Remember that in Revelation, from off all their faces and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth for the Lord hath spoken it verse 9 and it shall be said in that day this is speaking of the second coming lo this is our God we have waited for him that's what the bride does waits for the bridegroom he will save us this is the Lord we have waited for him we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation and so on. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Isaiah is saying one day when all the enemies of God and all the nations that shake their fist at heaven, they will be destroyed. Death will be swallowed up. Tears will be taken away. And there will be a feast, a supper like no other because Christ will be victorious and he will be with his people. Go back to Revelation 19 and let's look at these verses again with the informing theology of all that we've looked at briefly. What does this mean for us? Why is this picture taken up by John? And he's told to write these things down that's what he's told. He's told, write. This is an instruction from heaven given directly to John. Why is it expressed in this way? Well, the key is in the whole of the Bible. The bridegroom, the lamb, is Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. We're told that in verse 16. Who is the bride? It's the church. Not just the Jews, not one individual, every child of God, redeemed, chosen, called, effectively, gathered. And once the final one is gathered in and has become engaged to Christ himself, there will be this supper. Well, 
What's to happen? Let's look at verse 8. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. This is the church. She will be clean. She will be so white for clean and white for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Well, it's not mine because I don't have any. This is the given righteousness that Christ has clothed me with. Verse 9, he says to me, Right, blessed are they which are called. They've been called. The individuals have been chosen before the foundation of the earth. They've now been called. They've heard the call of Christ. Come unto me. And now the Lord has returned. And now they're being called finally to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Just so we know, verse 9 at the end it says, these are true sayings. You better believe it. This is what's going to happen. One day all the powerful empires and nations and rulers, they're going to fall. They're going to be destroyed. And we're only waiting for the second coming of Christ. We're only waiting for the final one to be gathered in of his children. So what does this mean for us tonight? Well, just a few lessons. It's very clear. All of God's children are chosen and called. This is repeated throughout scripture. I don't know how you can possibly ignore the doctrine of election. Christ went to the cross, John 17, with the names of all those that the Father gave him written on his heart and on his hands and he went and he saved them and now they're being called out of time into eternity god chooses us mysteriously yes not because of any merit of our own yes but he's choosing out all those who have been elected secondly he's gone away He's gone away. Remember in the picture of the prodigal son. It was us who went away. And then the Lord gave us that yearning, that emptiness, that dissatisfaction. And we came part of the way. But the Lord did the seeking. The Lord did the finding of the one that was lost. And he comes out to us and he clothes us. And we see him and we desire him and we want to return. Well, when does this supper begin? Thirdly, in ancient times, the supper didn't begin until the bridegroom turned up. This feast was not actually about the bride. Sorry to say, the ladies amongst you. It's not about the church. This is about the bridegroom. The father has done all the preparation. The great feast has been prepared for all to gather, but this is about the bridegroom. The father has prepared everything. We, the bride, we will be carried. There will be a great celebration on high. All will be ready. And those who are waiting now 
will have everything fulfilled way beyond anything we've ever imagined. Christ has kept his part of the covenant. He's promised that he will return and he will do it. Be sure of that, he will return. When he returns, it's not the end, it's just the beginning. But here's the key point, and I want to close really on this. What are we to do? If we are engaged, betrothed to Christ, we've been called, we've come in conversion, we've committed to Christ, as it were, and now we're looking for his second coming, his return. What are we to do? We'll look at verse 7 again. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. And this is the words. His wife, his church, us. She's made herself ready. What did the woman do in those 12 months? Did she sit around moping? Was she idle, indifferent, careless, distracted? No. During those 12 months or there or thereabouts, she thought of nothing else than the return of the bridegroom. She thought of that great day when their marriage would be consummated and when the feast would commence and the marriage would begin. She didn't go an hour of a day without thinking of his return. Will it be today? Will it be this hour? She thought of him, the one who somehow had chosen her. She couldn't understand why. Why me? And yet the time went quickly, but not quickly enough for her eyes. She desired his return Quickly, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we read. Maranatha, what must she do in the time? She must be faithful. Oh, a bride-to-be that's not faithful, like Goma? A wife that was faithless, but a bride-to-be that's not faithful and dedicated? We read because of the Lord Jesus' second coming, he urges us to purify ourselves, even as he is pure. That's what we must do it, be doing. If you are in Christ, if you're engaged to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, be sure he is coming. He is coming, we don't know when, but we know he will return. Our task is to make ready, to make ready ourselves. What does that possibly mean? Do I have an obligation? Do I have a responsibility? Aren't I just to wait, occupy till he come? That word is often misunderstood in the parable. It actually means invest, use your time, use your energy, await his coming with urgency and with productivity his return and her readiness will be the two focuses of the bride. He will return. She must be ready. Three lessons then as we close tonight. We are in covenant relationship with our God. 
that's absolutely certain for all children of God. His return to collect us, to carry us, to take us to his Father's house is certain. I trust we're all among that number that we've come by faith and trusted in Christ. And in the meantime, we are to make ourselves ready. We're to be thinking constantly of his return. What am I doing this today? Why am I worrying about this and that and this distraction and that relationship problem and all sorts of peripheral things compared to the return of Christ? She was making herself ready. She wasn't particularly bothered about the house that she lived in. She was moving to a new house, a heavenly home for us the beginning not the end and so we are to make ourselves ready when all God's children are safely gathered in we will be united to Christ in a perfect everlasting union this covenant picture of marriage it describes beautifully what we are part of and one day that eternal commitment of Christ to his church will be complete. The wedding will take place. The marriage supper of the Lamb will go on and on everlastingly as the Lord Jesus consummates intimately with his bride that relationship that was started in eternity past has already been achieved at the cross and on his return it will be fully visible to all of his people. Let's close tonight singing our final hymn. This is a hymn that we often sing at weddings but as I was reminded recently this is really about Christ and his love which is the pattern for every marriage and for every relationship with Christ as a believer. 841. O perfect love, all human thought transcending, lowly we kneel in prayer before thy throne. 800.